How can Christians impact and change our culture when radical seculars have taken control of it? How can Christians have greater influence if they're not involved in our culture? This is Bob Boyd. And Jerry Boyd. This is Issues in Education. The church in America has the wrong strategy, focusing on increasing their church numbers and not discipling them. Jesus had huge crowds, but the crowds didn't change the world. It was the dozen disciples who changed the world and turned it upside down. That's right. Our guest is David Barton, founder of Wall Builders, an organization teaching America's forgotten history. Their name, Wall Builders, comes from the rebuilding of the broken-down walls around Jerusalem after the Israelites came back to their land after God's judgment in their Babylonian captivity. With only about 6% of Americans with a biblical worldview, Christians don't know how to wage war in the spiritual realms. David Barton, we saw huge prayer gatherings before the election, but God didn't seem to answer the request like we wanted. Did God hear our prayers? Things didn't turn out the way people thought or believed or even the way we had been praying. Let not your heart be troubled. We were part of so many things that were happening with praying in D.C., so many of the prayer rallies that went on there across the nation. People thought they knew the outcome that was coming. It didn't happen the way they prayed. Does that mean God screwed up? It means we need to change our thinking. So this is a good wake-up call for the entire church. There's two very different places that we will spend eternity. There's heaven and there's hell. Hell is a real place. We know that from a number of scriptures, not the least of which is Revelation 21.8. There's the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So there is a very genuine, real place called hell. Who goes to hell? What is the first group that God sends to hell? First group says the cowards and the fearful. Everybody else is there for what they did. Liars or murderers or perjurers or whatever. The first two are there for what they didn't do because they didn't have backbone, because they weren't courageous, because they were fearful. The first group that God says, I don't want you guys around me at all, are the people who have no backbone, the people who won't stand, cowards and the fearful. So we've been playing defense for about 40 years, and we have seen our country slowly taken from us. I'm going to show you some things that have happened even since the election that probably you haven't heard about. It is now accelerated. The warfare will go up exponentially over the next four years. The whole concept of warrior is something that clearly is biblical, but it's not part of the American church. Amazon on its platform is purging conservative groups off of it. The pro-life groups are all being taken off of it. This is the sin of battle. And it's amazing to me that they don't have any trouble with all the violent groups that are out there. You've got the Antifas and the communists and the anarchists and the others. They're not having the same trouble that Christians and that conservatives are having. And in Hebrews 10.38, what does God say? God says, I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Not a good deal to back up, be intimidated. We have to get a little more engaged. We have to learn how to use our weapons and engage with our weapons. America is in a massive spiritual assault. Just look at the last election. We're not winning. But Christians don't know how to counter this spiritual war with biblical weapons. How are American history books a part of the spiritual warfare, which is changing the minds and attitudes of impressionable students? Minnesota, since the election, the new proposal is for the history standards for all the students in Minnesota. What they're proposing is that they remove from all the history books any mention of the American Revolution, any mention of the Civil War, any mention of World War I, any mention of World War II, and any mention of the Holocaust. 
You're going to take this out of American history? What's left? This is what has defined and shaped America for what we've been. It's been said to destroy a nation, destroy their history. If young people believe what they're taught, in other words, their indoctrination in this liberal fantasy history, like the 1619 Project, turning kids away from even liking their own country. It's like our schools are producing little traitors to the nation they belong to. Yes, and then Biden goes and overturns Trump's Patriotism Act so that it will get into the public schools and teach patriotism. And see, this is why the Bible is always telling us to remember the past, remember the former days, teach your children things that happened in former generations. History is so important. But what you always find is that any time a nation wants to reshape itself, it gets rid of its history so it can become something different. This is the kind of attack we're going to be seeing. It's a 1619 Project is another one that's doing the same thing, reshaping history. 1619 Project is so historically inaccurate in so many ways, and yet now, all 50 states, we have 1619 Project being taught in schools across the nation. And it's dead wrong, but if you don't know what history is, then you can remake it and reshape it, and that's what's happening here. So what they're doing is they're taking out everything that is documentable fact, and they're now indoctrinating with political opinions. By the way, if you think this has not been going on in schools around you, that goes on in those wacky blue states up north, it's been going on for a good while. Department of Education said if you get any federal funds, which is all the schools in the United States, you cannot have gender-specific bathrooms or locker rooms. So if to say that we want our bathrooms to be no longer gender-specific, we want boys and girls to share the same bathrooms, we want boys and girls to share the same locker and what happened in the battle just for sex education content, they want the age of consent to go down to the elementary school for sexual activity. The elementary kids can consent to sexual activity. But see, they no longer see sexual activity as a spiritual act. It's only a physical act. They're changing the way we teach our kids. You're going to have to go in the offense with your kids. You're going to have to protect your kids in a way you've never had to protect them before. We've been praying for revival. I have seen things happening across the nation I've never seen before. I've been part of gatherings where there's 70,000, 80,000 people gathering in arenas and stadiums, praying and fasting for America. I've just never seen so much prayer going for revival in America. If you're praying for revival, how do you know when your prayers have been heard and answered? Why do you think we're in a revival right now, even though it sure doesn't look like one? I literally believe that America is in a revival right now. Every time we've had a major revival in America, we've had major national conflict wars or civil wars. We see a revival as being a nice kind of smooth thing. It's not because revival is changing the way people think, changing the way they act, and that's not an easy thing to do. It often takes a lot of stress to do that. If you're an athlete, you know that you have to break down your muscles before they come strong again. Let me take you back to the American War for Independence. The first four battles that occurred, not one single time Did they call the national commander-in-chief and say, hey, George, we need help down here. Can you send some troops? Never happened, not one single time. Because the whole thinking was, this is our community. We'll take care of the battle here. We've got this. The Battle of Lexington, 700 British came marching the town. Lexington was just a bump on the map. They were not a big community at all. They became famous because of what happened there. They were just a little blip on the screen. When 700 British came to town, Reverend Jonas Clark said, not in our town you don't. He had 70 guys from his church go out and face the 700 British. 70 guys is all he had. They were obviously outnumbered 10 to 1, but they said, it's our community. We'll take care of our community. So the church in Lexington went out to face the 700 British. 
After that battle, the British go on to the North Bridge at Concord. The Reverend William Emerson has 300 guys from his church out there to meet them. Not in Concord, you don't. This is our community. You're not doing it here. On the road back to Boston, you had about 4,500 Americans lining the road on both sides, shooting at the British, and they were gathered largely by pastors. Reverend Payson Phillips and Benjamin Boss and so many others brought their churches out. We're going to defend our homes. We're going to defend our property. The whole mentality was we're taking care of our local community. We'll take care of what happens here. You guys take care of the national stuff. We'll take care of the local stuff. When you get enough local victories won, that's how you win a national victory. You win local victories to the point that you have a national victory. If you don't have the local focus, you will not have the results. You never win it from the top down. You win it from the bottom up every single time. When you look at national revivals, they occur locally. Now, George Whitfield, 34 years of preaching, he preached 18,000 sermons. 80% of all Americans physically heard him preach a sermon. He went from every single... How many towns in America do you have to show up in for 80% of the people to hear you, especially considering the fact that you don't have national media back then? You just have to be there. We call the Great Awakening a national revival, but but it's a massive number of local revivals is what it was. One thing we've got to get over is our obsession with the national focus. The second thing we have to get over is the idea that bigger is better. We've got some universities now with over 100,000 students. How do you get personalized instruction when you're one of 100,000? And we think that provides good education. That's not the way Jesus did his teaching. He had 12 guys and he spent time with each one. It was that individual stuff that really shapes you, shapes your character. But nonetheless, church is the same way. As a matter of fact, church is the one that's intriguing to me. There's 384,000 churches in America. It's a theologically conservative church that adheres to the teaching of the Bible How do you know when you're successful? That's a good question. I guess it depends on what success means. You mentioned a survey of American conservative evangelical churches, and the results were very surprising. What did the church leaders say? Top five answers. How do you measure success as a biblical believing church? By the number of attendees, by the size of the offerings, by the number of staff. Can you show me a Bible verse for any of those five? So as biblical-believing churches, we're using a measurement that is not biblical, which is interesting because you always get what you measure. If measurement is how many people are here, I'm going to do everything I can to get people here, which means I'm not going to offend anybody, and I'm not going to... Jesus was offending people all the time. Not that he tried to, but you remember Jesus spoke the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, and all the time the crowd... John 6, he said, there they go again. Everybody's leaving me. Turn to the disciples. You guys going to leave me too? Oh, man, Jesus, that was a really hard teaching, but yeah, we'll stay with you. It's unbelievable how many people got offended him and left. He wasn't trying to offend them. He just speaks the truth in love. And sometimes speaking the truth in love is very offensive. And now we're not going to say that. So what we have is we measure this, but this number of attendees, by the way, you saw all five of those things deal with bigger numbers, bigger number of people. So the criteria used by the pastors to determine their success was to say bigger is better. But you say the total number of Christians in America is declining. So what's up with that? you took any megachurch in America, and we have an explosion in the number of megachurches in America, and we have a real decline in the number of Christians in America. It's interesting. We have a number of big churches growing, but the number of Christians has declined by 20% in the last 20 years. 20 years ago, 85% of Americans professed to be Christians. Today, it's 
85%. So there's a decline going, and yet the number of megachurches is exploding. If you took a guy out in the country that has a church of 20 people, and you said, we have just decided you're the pastor of our new church of 70,000. We need a new pastor in our megachurch. You're going to now have 70,000. Which pastor of 20 would turn that down to go take it? Because this is success. I've gone from 20 to 70,000. That's success because it's bigger. And we're always seeing things in terms of moving bigger. We do the same thing when we have revival crusades. We want a lot of people in there. If we took $10,000 out of the mission fund and gave it to hold a crusade and four people showed up, we go, that was a waste of money. $10,000 and four people showed up. We're measuring things by how many are there. I've had meetings before. I had a meeting in Arizona one time where six people showed up to the meeting. What's that do for your ego? I don't really know. I don't really care because one of the guys who showed up later became one of the most effective state senators in Arizona as a result of that meeting. He felt like God called him to run. And see, Jesus with 12 disciples changed the world. It's not how many you have. It's the quality of what you do and it's what you're able to pour into them, that quality. And so the mentality of bigger is better is something we've got to get over. Jesus had huge crowds. We know that from the way that he fed thousands, fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Had huge crowds. The crowds did not change the world. It was the 12 guys he spent time with that changed the world. Those are the guys they invested into and poured into. It's the quality of what's there. It's not the amount of what's there. That's an excellent point. It's not the size of the crowds in the church, but the discipleship, even of a few. Like Jesus, who took just 12 guys and really gave them one-on-one discipleship. That makes the difference. It's all about teaching and discipling, not simply conversion or recruiting more and more. I agree. If you remember the Great Commission, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, the Great Commission says, You teach them everything I have taught you. That's discipleship. And so discipleship is really what the Great Commission is about. Discipleship is what will change things. If we were to teach people everything that Jesus taught us, we wouldn't be just saying, hey, follow me in the sinner's prayer. We'd say, hey, do you remember what Jesus said about no-fault divorce and about the definition of marriage? Peter said, Lord, that's a hard teaching. If Moses allowed us to have a bill of divorcement, we could sit aside our wife for any reason. We had no-fault divorce. Jesus said, yeah, but it wasn't that way from the beginning. At the beginning, God put them together, male and female, said, whatever God has joined together, let not man put asunder. You can't have no-fault divorce. Peter said, that's a hard teaching. Yes, welcome to discipleship. That's what discipleship is about, changing the way you think and the way you act, going counterculture, if you will. Jesus had so many economic teachings. Jesus is anti-capital gains tax. Matthew 20 talks about his opposition to minimum wage. And John 8 talks about the right to confront your accuser in a legal process and procedure. These are all teachings of Jesus. This is what he was teaching his disciples. If we were to teach everything, and that's what the Great Commission says, teach everything that I'm teaching you, we would be teaching people how to think. See, the problem we have right now, only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. We don't know how to think about criminal justice. We don't know how to think about economics. We don't know how to think about so many things that Jesus taught about because we focused the gospel down to just conversion. That's a starting point. That's not a finish point. That's where you start. You got a long way to go after you get there, and that's why it takes everybody discipling someone. So revival occurs when you start really focusing on discipleship. So what were the first two revivals about? about how to live a Christian life. What Whitfield did was tell you how to live a Christian life. Jesus only mentioned the word church three times. He mentioned the word kingdom 141 times. Jesus wasn't in the building the church. He was in the building the kingdom. 
That's a different viewpoint. Do you know the first great awakening ran from 1730 to 1770? 40 years long. The second great awakening, 77 years? You could have been born in 1802 and died in 1877, been 75 years old and never knew that your whole life was lived in a revival. You wouldn't recognize the revival because it's just daily life to you. These things last decades. Most people didn't know they were in a revival when they were happening. It was usually historians 30 years later that said, I think that may have been a revival. At the time it was going on, nobody knew it was a revival. Didn't look like it to them because they're going from day to day. Historians decades later point back and say, I think that was a revival. Let's call that the first great awakening. Wouldn't call that when it was happening. We call it that now. So that's why I think we may be in one right now. But it doesn't feel like it. Anybody feel like this is a revival now? No, not after election night. Revival, historically, it's a process. It's not an event. And that's the difficulty we have with revivals. We think there's going to be an event where everything turns. It's not. It's a process. It's like watching your kids grow. This next generation thinks wrong in so many areas right now. 75% of college students think socialism is the way to go. There is no example of history in 5,800 years where socialism has produced prosperity and freedom. Not a single example. It doesn't exist. But they don't know that. That history is being taken out and they're getting indoctrination instead. Millennials and Gen Zs, there's so many areas and moral areas, marriage, things like that. They're not right on that because nobody's discipled them on that. Nobody's taken them aside and helped them think through it. And I will tell you, I've never been as encouraged in my life as I am every summer when we do leadership training programs. I've never seen people embrace, recognize truth faster and embrace it more fiercely than the generation we got coming now. And once they embrace that truth, they become warriors for it in a way that our generation has not been warriors for it. I love what I see with young people, but you have to be able to get to them, create a relationship with them, and help them understand what truth is. And then once they do, they love it. They embrace it. They recognize that their heart tends to know what it is. That's really encouraging, David. Yet the church has wasted its progeny by turning over their own church children to secular humanist pagans, really, to raise, to disciple them into functional atheism. And the best way to teach is by mentoring God's children. I agree. We need a revival. Going back to the Great Awakening, Samuel Cooper in the Boston area, revival up there, there was a young man who kept hanging around him. He kind of took this young man and spent time with him and helped him think through things and helped him understand the scriptures. And, And the young man that he mentored is a guy named John Quincy Adams. Now, you may recognize that name, who had a massive, massive effect on the nation as president, what he did, anti-slavery, everything else. But he was mentored by one guy who spent time with him. Gilbert Tennant, I told you what he did around Philadelphia. There was a young man that hung around him that he spent time with. He would spend time with that young man, helping him think through issues and ask some questions and helping him put things together. And that young man was a guy named Benjamin Rush, who is considered one of the three most significant founding fathers in American history. He's right up there with George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. He started the first Bible Society. He started the Sunday School Movement. He started the abolition movement in America. Just unbelievable what the guy did. He was mentored by an individual from an older generation who reached out and touched him as a young man and helped him think right. You have the same thing when you look at Samuel Davies. Samuel Davies is considered the greatest pulpit orator in American history. There was no one who was better at speaking and delivering a message verbally than this man. And he had this kid that hung around with him and just never missed a service and was always with him. And he spent time with this kid and that kid grew up and he was a kid named Patrick Henry. I wonder where Patrick Henry learned to be the greatest orator in American history. 
because he studied at the feet of the greatest pulpit order in American history. See, all these kids took it into politics, but they learned it from someone else, and they, they're the ones who helped shape the nation because we discipled the next generation on how to think and how to get involved in these areas. And so that's what we have to do with all these generations. We're going to have to do the same thing. I'm going to encourage you, whatever your age, you find someone younger than you are, and you start investing your life into them. Start pouring your life into someone younger. Help them think through everything that goes on. Find out what the issues are around them in their life, at their school, everything else. You help them put the pieces together. Help them start thinking through because they're not going to get it in the culture we've got today. John Quincy Adams, the American Revolution is going on at eight years old. He had his musket out with the Massachusetts Minutemen at the age of eight. When he was 14 years old, he was sent by Congress to the court of Catherine the Great in Russia, an ambassadorial position, 14 years old, because he spoke six languages and he was the official translator for the American ambassador in Russia. At 16 years old being sent to arrange the peace negotiations to end the American Revolution. At 16, Congress sends him to set up the peace negotiations in Paris between the Americans and the British. When he was 21 years old, Washington said he's the best diplomat we have. He served as a diplomat under his father and then became a U.S. Senator under Thomas Jefferson. He went back to being a diplomat for President James Madison. He actually ended the War of 1812. For the fifth president, he became the secretary of state, and then he became our sixth president. So he's already spent a lifetime in politics and had a huge impact just as a young man. And so as the sixth president of the United States from 1825 to 1829, he's president. And then when he finished his presidency, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. In total, he's been 70 years in public service. He dies in the House of Representatives. He is the huge anti-slavery leader at the time. He hates slavery. It's an abomination. His nickname was the Hellhound of Abolition. He was served in a Congress as 80% pro-slavery. So he's anti-slavery and 80% pro-slavery Congress. He was introducing anti-slavery stuff so regularly that Congress passed what's called a gag order. You can introduce any subject you want to in Congress as long as it's not anti-slavery. It was directed specifically at him. So for the next 10 years, he was not allowed to do that. He kept doing it anyway. Got in trouble all the time. They tried censure. They tried reprimand. They tried expulsion. We even have political ads of him in the day where it shows him with a bullseye on his forehead said, someone killed this man, get him out of Congress. So they were after him because of his anti-slavery position. And about 10 years into it, reporters say, you know, there's just not much you're getting done. They oppose you or they oppose what you're doing. And yet you continue to do this. Don't you get depressed or frustrated? He said, no. I said, why? Listen to his answer. He said, because duty is ours. Results are God's. I don't care how it turns out. I'm just going to do the right thing. And so he died, drew his last breath in Congress. And and this young freshman kid was appointed to be one of the official people of the funeral procession in Congress, this young freshman kid. And so this kid was so inspired by John Quincy Adams, he wants to do something good. So he runs for the Senate and he runs for all these offices and lost every single thing. He did not win another office until he was elected president of the United States 15 years later. It's this guy named Abraham Lincoln. Now, Abraham Lincoln goes on to end slavery, called the Great Emancipator. And by the way, John Quincy Adams, that was the millennial of his generation. He's the old man. This is the young kid that's just arrived in Congress, doesn't know up from down or anything else. He gets mentored by this older guy. John Quincy Adams never saw the end of slavery, but he got to train the guy who ended slavery. 
go back to George Whitfield. If it hadn't been for his preaching, we would not have the United States of America. He had a whole lot of opposition. I'll point out most of his opposition came from Christians. The greatest opponents I have against me are all Christians. And that's what happens anytime you have a revival is you've got people who don't think biblically attacking the people who do think biblically. That's the way it was with Whitfield. The preachers told their parishioners to throw potatoes at him, throw rocks at him. This guy is radical. It's old wineskins versus new wineskins. And so the church is often the last to get on board. Now, at the end, the church says, we had a great revival. Yeah, you guys got on board about 80% through it. You were fighting it most of the way. The church often fights revival because it's God doing something new, and they're used to what's old. And they don't want to be challenged to do something new. Over his 18,000 sermons that he preached, he would travel the United States on horseback. He made seven trips from Maine down to Georgia, back to Maine, down to Georgia on horseback, all types of weather on horseback, going back and forth. He carried a portable pulpit with him. He would sit it up in a town. He would preach. He would disciple. He would mentor. And then he would go to the next town. His preaching killed him. He didn't know he was in a revival. The last two years of his life, after he would preach, he would go off to the side and cough up a bunch of blood and throw up his guts and he'd get back on his horse and go to the next town and do the same thing. If you ask Whitfield, was it fun to do what he did? Probably say no, but it's what God had him doing. Duty is ours, results are God's. Our guest has been David Barton. He's given us the answer to how to change America, and it's by changing the minds of young Americans in discipleship and mentoring. We're in a time of upheaval that God could use to bring about a great revival. God has his part, and we have our part. Only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. We're in a hurry to get people saved, but not discipled. That's right, and it means taking our own church children out of the humanist schools and giving them a biblical worldview. We pray for courageous Christian leaders to bring our nation back to God through revival. And what does God do? God gives us little boys and little girls. How we raise them determines if they'll become those great Christian leaders. Just like our founders. As the great Christian John Quincy Adams said, get this and remember this, duty is ours, results are God's. Amen. If you would like a CD copy of today's program, please ask for number 1793, How to Transform Our Nation. That's number 1793, How to Transform Our Nation. You can order a CD copy of this program from our website. Our website is issuesineducation.org. That's issuesineducation.org. Please give us a call at 928-776-0000. That's 928-776-0000. Zero zero from Matthew twenty eight. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. For issues in education, this has been Bob and Jerry Boyd. 